One was the many very positive sides of the belonging to the lot, which is called the Ethiopian, the Yiddish house. There's also a darker side, uh, which many have observed. Because how is it that we typically form our identities as communities? Well, again, the sociologist will tell us that it's one of two ways we shape our identities. The more individualistic society is like our own, our identity is typically shaped by our performance, by our success. I know I'm someone when I'm rich, when I'm intelligent, when I get a cool now that I might get a bleed, when I'm beautiful, when all the men or all the women are, are looking at me. It's my performance that tells me who I am, that in the community affirms me for who I am. In more traditional societies, it's not so much through our performance and our achievements, but through difference, through comparing myself and my community to others on the basis of our history, our value, even our skin color, those features that we feel make us superior to other communities, that's how we know who we are. And you know, both of these sources of identity end up being incredibly oppressive. Because when I don't perform, when I'm not successful, where does that leave me? Well, it leaves me excluded, it leaves me an outsider, I'm shunned from this community. And if my identity comes from difference, from being in the right group, it means I have to look down on those others who are outside my group and my community. They're the ones to blame for what's wrong in the world. It's a source of a great deal of conflict in our world. The Ukrainians, Putin seems to be saying, are really just estranged Russians. And they need to be brought back to the superior community. They need to be made Russian again, forcefully, if necessary. Whites, the rulers of our own country, said for many years, have a superior civilization to blacks, and therefore we need to develop separately from one another. And in the context of these very deep divisions in, in our world, we live in a fragmented and a fractured world. The real question that was raised, the very old question, is is there any hope for our deeply divided world? Is there anything that will bring us together? Is there hope of united human community that the philosophers have always dreamt of? Well, you know, the Apostle Paul says that there is hope. But that it comes from a very surprising place, from a seemingly insignificant community of the church. And in this letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote uh, towards the end of his career, he wants to highlight God's cosmic purposes in and through the church. And as I said earlier, in this particular passage, he wants to highlight how this new community that God has brought to be through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, how this community actually breaks down so many of these traditional barriers that have divided the world. And how this community, God, God intends to actually be a reflection to the world of what the human race, what humanity was always meant to be. Now, did you notice that the central verse in verse 15 of chapter 2, where Paul said that God's purpose in Jesus was to create in himself one new humanity out of to one new human race, something that the world hasn't seen before, a community that's united across differences. And really what I want to do this evening is just ask ourselves as a small community of followers of Jesus Christ here this evening, how will we increasingly become this kind of community where Jesus spoke about as the city of the hill and the light of the world, a community that's united across our differences? Well, three things uh, I want us to see this evening that form the, the basic vision uh, of this paragraph, of this 
section. They all premised by that one command. There's actually a command there in verse 11. Therefore, remember. And the first, first command, that's 11, 17, that's the only command in the first half of 11. And in the present tense, it has a sense of, I want you to remember this if you want to be this kind of community. Remember and keep on remembering, keep on pulling these things to mind because I think we could be so easily forgetting. What's the first thing uh, he calls us to remember? The first thing he calls us to remember as God's people is remember what it was to be excluded from the people of God. Remember what it was to be on the outside, to be excluded. You know, Paul was writing this letter in the context of a growing Gentile church. Of course, all the first followers of Jesus had been Jewish. But within a few decades, that had begun to change. And now he's writing to a predominantly Gentile church. More and more non-Jews have become followers of Jesus. Probably some, many among these might also have been second-generation Christians. Those whose parents had been followers of Jesus before them. You know, in this context, I think it was very easy for them to become complacent about their new status. Maybe take that title of being the people of God very lightly. Uh, on their lips, and Paul has to remind them uh, of their historic situation, remind them of what it was to be excluded, what it was to be ostracized, what it was to be called names. He says, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by the human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship. Israel. Remember, he says. And we know that in the first uh, century, um, Jews typically, uh, quite common in the writing of Paul's sermon, would tend to have looked down on Gentiles, have regarded them as fundamentally unclean, as defiled. A Jew would never have gone into uh, a Gentile home. They were idolaters, they were idol worshippers, they were unclean. You know, although Paul hints here that the Jews in many ways have misunderstood their, their privilege as the people of God, maybe trusting in that outward sign of circumcision, it's nevertheless clear here, isn't it, that Paul can see no greater privilege and belonging to this one people of God, the people that God had committed himself to in covenant relationship, those through whom God had worked over centuries to bring about the redemption of the world. And you know, he uses interesting political terminology here, doesn't he? To describe that privilege. Remember that at that time you were excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of the promise. You know, although Jews weren't a politically independent uh, nation in the first century, they were living under Roman rule, they weren't nevertheless a publicly recognizable body. That word that Paul uses here, citizenship in Israel, uh, the Greek word politeia. It's the word from which we get our English word, politics. Um, <clears throat> and very frequently this word actually meant constitution of a people group, what made them unique. And what Paul is drawing attention to here is the fact that although the Jewish people lived scattered throughout the Roman Empire, they all lived under the Jewish politics, the Jewish constitution, which for them was the law of Moses. They all had a common way of life. And more than that, not only did they have the law that united them, also, wherever they lived, whether it was in Rome or Ephesus, they all looked to the temple in Jerusalem, the magnificent building, as a symbol of their unity uh, under the white God. 
You know, so this, this thing here, this geographically spread out community of the one people of God, that Paul says, remember, you are excluded from. And that, that, that calls my life a very serious thing. Uh, to be excluded from this community, Paul is saying, regardless of what other privileged communities you might belong to, you may have been a citizen of a great Roman Empire. You may have belonged to prestigious trade guilds and have belonged to all the cults of the Greek gods. But to be excluded from this community, Paul says here in verse 12, was to have been without hope and without God in the world. Very strong word, isn't it? There's only one true God amidst all the God of the ancient world, and there's only one people of God, and there's no hope if you do not belong to this one people. One of you has such a high view of belonging to the people of God today. To be outside the people of God, to be outside the church, to be without God, to be without hope. And you know, Paul is telling you and me here this evening who are followers of Jesus that we are to remember that, constantly to remember that experience of being without hope, that experience of being excluded, of having no ultimate hope in life. Why does he tell us to remember that? Well, I think we can so easily forget, and I think it's ultimately to humble us out of any sense of superiority, any sense of entitlement. You know, I am who I am, my community is slightly better than others. Know, that, that's why uh, God chose me. He's reminding us that we have no natural claim or right to belong to God's family. We can't look down at any others. We need to remember that we ourselves are right who are excluded from God's community. You know, it also makes us much more sensitive to those who aren't excluded. Those who have been excluded themselves, those who have been marginalized, are much more sensitive, much more aware of those kind of dynamics when people are excluded. It makes us much more so, if you want to be a united community, Paul says, first remember, it begins with remembering what it was to be on the outside. Secondly, and this is really the central paragraph in this section, he says, remember what God has done in Jesus Christ to bring peace. What God has done to bring peace between the divided groups. There's a wonderful bus now, there are a few of these in the Bible, and this is one of them. Verse 13, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and who destroyed the barriers to the final war of hostility. Peace is the theme of this paragraph that I want to give us repeat actually four times. Jesus Christ has brought peace through his death. And I want to suggest this evening that the way in which Jesus has brought peace is very surprising. It's very surprising, I think, to both a Jewish and to a non-Jewish Gentile audience. Firstly, surprising, very surprising to Jews. You know, the Jews believed that that unity would ultimately come as everybody committed themselves to living under God's law. They hoped that the Gentiles would also come to live under that law. But you know, Paul highlights here how the law, first was given by God, never fulfilled that purpose. And the law actually served to highlight the divisions in the world. It was a law that had led to boasting, to, to looking down on those who seemed to be so far away from the law. There's a well-known uh, Jewish prayer that a Jewish male would pray once a day. When, when I hear this, God, I thank you. 
to love them to Gentile. Verse 20, for the woman. Death is Christ. And you know, no way was this provision brought by the Lord more clearly seen than in the temple, in that sacred place in which Jews alone were better, and from which Gentiles were excluded uh, on pain of death. Now, sort of give us a little visual depiction of it here. Uh, so, this is a scale model. If you go and visit Jerusalem today, actually uh, go see it. Scale model of the ancient city of Jerusalem, including the temple. So, the temple was a huge, vast complex that had been uh, restored by Herod the Great. Now, the outer court of the temple, uh, everybody can get into there, that was the court of the Gentiles, but the actual inner sanctuary, uh, the temple itself, uh, no Gentiles, no non Jews or foreigners could enter. And there was big warning signs actually placed up uh, on the outside. And yeah, that's the next slide. Uh, this is a little, this is an inscription from archaeologists found while they were digging around Jerusalem about 100 years ago. And this is what that uh, inscription reads It says, No stranger is to enter within the balustrade around the temple enclosure. Whoever is caught will be will himself be responsible for his ensuing death. And there's good evidence that the Romans actually allowed the Jews to carry out uh, that, um, that punishment uh, for anyone, uh, any non-Jew who was found uh, in the temple. This is the divining wall of hostility in the temple that Paul is speaking about. It says, no entrance into uh, the people of God, into the presence of God by any non-Jew. And this is a barrier that the Apostle Paul says Jesus has broken down through himself. And if you notice those words, that Jesus has brought in himself a, a new unity. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, destroying the barrier, the dividing world hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create one new humanity in himself. If Jesus did what the law Never do. Through his death, he brought together the people of God. You know, in the ancient world, it's very interesting. Um, the ruler was often thought as an embodiment of the law. He's the one who gave the law. He was thought of as a living law in himself. In his own life, he embodied what the law, the kind of life that the law pointed to. And the Apostle Paul seems to be saying that Jesus is that ruler uh, of his people. The people of God does have a codified body of laws. Regulations like the Jews have now governing all of life. Jesus' own life is the model for the people of God to emulate. Jesus is the presence of God that the temple has pointed towards him. Whoever comes to God now has equal access to God through him and in him. So Jesus has brought peace in a surprising way that challenged against Jewish expectations around the law, around the temple. But you know, in the same way, Challenge Gentile expectations. And if you know anything about Roman history, very famously the Romans claimed to have brought peace to the whole world. But how was that uh, that peace brought? Was it brought through force and coercion? It was brought through the shedding of blood of all who refused to live under their rule. Jesus, Paul says, is a very different kind of ruler. He has brought peace through his own blood. He has brought unity through serving and through ultimately sacrificing himself for his people, through taking the penalty of the Lord, taking the death that his people deserve for them. That Jesus 
prophet is that all people, both Jew and Gentile, are in themselves equally alienated from God and in need of being reconciled to the price of their sins to be paid. But the cross also says that all who come to him and bow have equal access to him. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, Paul says in verse 17, and peace to those who are near as well. The Jews also needed that peace. He goes into a completely new identity. It's an identity not built on government. How can you look down on anyone, any group, or any community anymore? Jesus Christ says that we are all equally in need of God's salvation. But it's no longer that we need to look down on all the people to know who we are. We've all failed to live up to God's law. We don't look to our own performance, we look to Jesus' performance. He lived a perfect life and we should live. He ultimately died the death that we should die to bring us back into God's family. Keep on remembering this, Paul said there. Remember what Jesus has done. Remember his costly death in bringing together this new people of God. No need to remember this so much still today. Isn't it shameful as we look at the history of the church? How often this dividing war of Turkey has been rebuilt. How often the church has been divided along racial lines, along tribal lines. How we've had black churches and had white churches and colored churches. Paul would say that the dividing community is a denial of what Jesus died for. And he would say that the church also has a fundamental disposition of welcome and of acceptance towards outsiders, towards those who are different to us, towards the marginalized. Why? Because we ourselves know what it was to be excluded, to not have any part of God's family. And what a great opportunity we have here at Salabash to reflect that. Uh, where we have people, a great place of people from different backgrounds, international students from so many different backgrounds. So we ought to, as a church, welcome the outsiders. We also need to also work very hard at maintaining the unity that Jesus has brought. Now, it's interesting when we come to the, the section of Paul's letter, which really deals with exaltation. A lot of Paul's letters are divided by this, what Jesus Christ has done, what are the implications of that. And one of the first commands that he gives in chapter 4 is this, is to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make every effort. And I think if you've ever tried to bring together a community of different people, you will know how difficult this is. I think as a church, we've also experienced recently how difficult it is to be united because we are different and in many different ways. What is it that will enable us to live as a united community? Well, ultimately, I think what Paul is saying is actually by following the way of Jesus, the one who is our peace, not trying to establish unity by force or by coercion, not domineering, over those who disagree with us, try to always prove that we're in the right, even though we might be. But following the way of sacrifice, of at times giving up our rights for the sake of the body, of using our privileges to serve the weak, of ultimately learning to pray together, pray with the people who are different uh, to us. For through them, Paul says, we both have access to the Father. By one spirit. Can you imagine in the first century, a Jew and a Gentile coming together? Those who have been getting to each other's homes now coming and praying together. And what a witness this is to the world that as a church, people from very different backgrounds can begin to pray together, to begin to share life and share their homes with one another. So remember.
to finally and briefly inform us to remember the grateful privilege here of belonging to God's family. And in this final and climactic paragraph here, we'll begin to highlight what it means, uh, the privileges of belonging to his family. And again, due to this political terminology, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens who work for God's people. But did you notice it goes even further than that? You're not only citizens together in the kingdom of God, you are also members together of God's household. And that intimate community, the household. And you know, in the ancient world, uh, a household was much more than we think of today. We think of the small nuclear family and a piece of land. In the ancient world, a household included the whole estate, um, everything that belonged to the master, all the servants, all the land. Um, that was part of the household. It was the most basic community. And Paul is saying here that God is growing a grand household, a grand estate in the world. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are part of this family, you are part of this great household. And then he changes the metaphor slightly. He says, you know, this household is at the same time a great temple that God is building in the world. A magnificent temple, a temple that is built for the foundation, the teaching of the apostles and prophets. With Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined and, and uh, is joined together and rises become a holy temple to the Lord. You know, the ancient world was familiar with many uh, magnificent temples. And Paul is writing here, of course, the Ephesians. The Ephesians would be very familiar to the temple um, of the goddess Artemis, just outside of the city of Ephesus. A, a magnificent building. And you know, the reason to be that the gods actually in some ways really dwell uh, in this temple. But you know what sets Paul apart here? that he doesn't believe that God is limited to some physical place, some physical temple. Where does God's spirit dwell here? Let me emphasize that God's spirit dwells in the soul of the wise individual, some Greek philosophers call that. Where does God's spirit dwell here? God dwells in this new community that God is building. Wherever that community exists, the followers of Jesus Christ, this is the building that God, this is the temple that God is building. That's where God's Dwells. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And what a wonderful privilege that is. This is a fulfillment of the great promise that God, covenant promise God has made to his people. And I will dwell among you. You will be my people. And I will be your God. Now there's even a suggestion here that God's people, as they come into this to the very life of God Himself. The life of God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Have you ever wondered why we so long for community? Because we created the image of the God who is community in Himself. The God who is eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. I wonder if you notice that Trinitarian language that Paul uses throughout this passage. For through Him, that is through the Son, through Jesus Christ, verse 18, we both have access to the Father by one of the spirits. Again, verse 22, and in him, as in Christ, you too are being brought together to become a dwelling in which God the Father lives by his spirit. To be in the church, to belong to the church, is to share in the life of God himself, is to be at the center of his purposes, 
That this is what it means to be truly human. To know the God who in the beginning created us, and the God who is now recreating us in Jesus Christ, recreating us in his image. I wonder if you also notice here the language of creation uh, that Paul uses. Uh, that verse that we began with, um, in verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself. The Greek word used there is poiekos, to create. The same word that's used in Genesis 1 when God, in the beginning, created the world. It's a word that's used um, at the end of the previous section, uh, this beautiful, that beautiful verse in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, God's poiema, where we can actually shoot a poem from. We are the work of God, the, the creator, the artist. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And what is the first good work that God has prepared for us as his people in advance to do? Well, the first good work, verse 11 onwards, is to live in the community with God's people. Even those people who are very different to us, maybe even those we maybe used to look down on, to live in community with them and, and to be a reconciled and a reconciled community. You know, as we begin to do that, as we begin to see how great our God is, He's not just our little tribal God that we worship, He's not just the God of white people or of black people, He's the creative God, the God who's creating a universal human community who creates us all in His image and longs for us all to be brought. To him. And you know, we need each other. I wonder if you noticed that this year of together. God is building this together. And in him, the whole building rises. Not just one, just one part of the building is rising. One, the whole building. We need each other in community, in God's household. You know, in our own family, it's wonderful to see how each one of my children actually brings something unique to our family. And each one brings out something different in the other. I play a game with my children where I go around and I tickle them. And I love seeing how my daughter responds to my five-year-old son when he tickles them. And how they respond to each other. And each one, they talk to each other and have a little smart sayings to each other. Each one brings out something different. And that's what it means to belong to God's community. We each have a part to play in our differences. Jesus brought us together. And what a wonderful time university is to actually discover that unique role that you have to play. God's family. Would that be true of us um, as a community? May we increasingly remember uh, what it was to be excluded, remember what Jesus has done, the costly, costly death to bring us together. May we remember and enjoy it, uh, being part of a diverse community uh, as we build it into the world. That's what I have to say for this evening. And I, I think there's kind of opportunity for questions. I think Discuss with lots of questions, maybe the history of the church. Um, open questions, anything related to the passage, maybe something that's quite tangible that comes to mind. Um, any questions on the floor? And I'll try to repeat them as well, just so everybody can hear me. Yes.
punishment for, for any Gentile found in the temple. Because it's a very good question. Because generally the Jews didn't have the right uh, of capital punishment. I think the Romans guarded that very carefully. Um, because of course, you know, there was the fear of uprisings and people sort of putting to death uh, pro-Roman causes and so on. And so you're quite right that in the title of Jesus in John 18, the Jews actually say to Pilate, no, they want to execute Jesus, but he has no right to, to execute anyone. So uh, the evidence is interesting it comes in Acts, um, where they want to stone the Apostle Paul, um, and the accusation against him is that he has brought the Gentiles uh, into the temple. Uh, so you can go and read that at the later chapter of Acts. I can't remember, uh, probably around Acts 24 or so. Uh, so they want to stone him. And actually, the Roman centurion comes and steps in and actually prevents that from happening. Um, I can't think offhand um, what of a particular reference to give you in terms of that. But uh, vandalizing a temple, uh, I do know, was regarded as capital, capital punishment in the ancient world, you know, to disregard the gods like that in some way was um, highly offensive and, and could bring with capital punishment. Uh, but, but offhand, uh, so, so I was a little bit tempted 